In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AVI, to support their investment and groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13 from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. All right, welcome to a very special edition of Hear That Podcast. Growling, Paul Inner Jr., Jim Morrison, and Mo Egger of The Athletic all here with you because we are, uh, we're doing the latest in our sort of our Game Changer series where we look back at some of the most relevant moments in the history of some local franchises. And we started with the Reds, if you haven't listened to that one, myself, C. Trent Rosecrans, and Mo. Talking about the 1995 Reds. Last time the Reds advanced in the postseason. So now we have to go further back (laughs) to find the last time the other professional team advanced in the postseason, which was the 1990 Cincinnati Bengals team and last won a playoff game on January 6th, 1991, a day that I think many hardcore Bengals fans can rip off that date off the top of their head now uh, when they beat the Oilers. But we are here to dive into that team, that era, the passing of the torch, that playoff series, which included the curse of Bo Jackson, which occurred in the loss to the Raiders that happened the next week, and much, much more. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Ready to go. Yeah. We're not going to be, luckily for us, we're not the only ones that are going to be on this podcast. Um, We have... Jay has done a, f- a fantastic job, and there's going to be a companion piece on The Athletic to come out with this, which is really kind of just hearing from a lot of the major players from that era and that team. Um, and we are also going to have the full, basically almost raw, unedited interviews in a separate podcast that will drop in um, to go along with that. And that is hearing from some of the players that were involved in this. You'll hear snippets from them during this uh We'll drop in a pieces, uh, small pieces of these interviews for you on this pod, but the full rod where it's just great stuff, just great stuff on there from this. Anthony Munoz, Max Montoya, Eric Ball, uh, then running backs coach Jim Anderson, young Jim Anderson then, uh, Solomon Wilcots and James Brooks, all going to hear from all of them on this podcast and have a lot more of the full raw unedited stuff from them on a podcast later this week to go along with Jay's look back at the last time this franchise won a playoff game fairly exhausting work by jay on this one way to way to carry the load (laughs) it was fun it was uh, you know the 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 weirdest thing about that is this is this is a a rewatch right well yeah it 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 dawned on me that this was a watch i don't know what i was a big sports fan i was a Bengal fan this was my super senior year 
in college. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder and, why you missed it, Jay. <laughs> that, that's it. I mean, I, I think a lot of it was I was so wrapped up in the Reds run to the World Series that year. And I mean, I was a Bengal fan at the time, but I don't remember watching either of these games. And and I'm wondering, um, I had I had quit smoking at this time. And and I was I was shacking up with my girlfriend, now wife, um, in a in a little like one bedroom uh, place on Palmer Street at OU. And I just think I, I guess on Sundays we were out doing other stuff. I just maybe it was too hard for me to sit there and watch a, a football game without without smoking a cigarette. But I just I, I don't remember watching. I know I know what happened in these games, but I don't remember ever watching either one of these games. I remember watching these games vividly. This, in in preparation for doing this, I had never, I, I didn't even know until Paul said something that the Raiders game was out there. So I hadn't, there was a lot about that game that I had forgotten. The Oilers game, the, the two things I kind of remember, I, and in, in just kind of going back and reading what was written at that point, you talk about how, you met this team with a shoulder shrug. There's a, there's a piece that was written, like on Thursday or Friday before the Oilers before the Oilers game, and it's about how, you know, tame the crowd had been all year long. You know, our fans, the the, the game's going to be sold out, but is it going to be raucous? Is it going to be the jungle? Is it going to be like it was in '88? Um, and it it was, but I also remember, and and I was. I was in the eighth grade. I was 13 years old. I remember watching this game with my dad and being utterly bored in the second half. Now, the Raiders game, you know, was a different story. But even if, if you watch the Oilers game, the announcers, it's Don Crickey and Bob Trumpy. The game is over when it's 10 nothing. Like, Don Crickey's talking yeah. about, well, the Bengals are going to go to Los Angeles. They're going to take on the Raiders. Can they slide? It's like, pal, like, what are you doing? But I, I remember the second half, even, like, re-watching it, it's really boring. And it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, and I hate to say that because I'm waiting 30 years for, you know, another game like that. Um, I kind of took it for granted at the time, but I kind of felt like even, I, I, I remember this team, they got off to a good start. And then I remember vividly when they won their last game, watching the Steelers and Oilers. And it was, we had to root for Houston so they would finish in a three-way tie at nine and seven, and it was kind of uninspiring the way they kind of backed into the playoffs. But, yeah, there's a lot about this time that I remember, but the, the Raiders game itself was fun to revisit because aside from Bo Jackson getting hurt, I didn't really remember a lot. And there was a lot to that game. Just to kind of give a little bit of background to set the stage uh, as we dive a little bit into more of the logistics of it in the era and and hear from some of the players too. Um, you know, obviously 1988, they go to the Super Bowl, uh, lose to the 49ers. You know about that much talked about. What happens after that? You know, 1989, they have a couple of games where they destroy people. I mean, they just look like they could be that great team again, including that epic 61 to 7 win over Houston where Sam Weich calls timeout uh, <laughs> with like no time left to kick a field goal to go from 58 to 61 to 7 because he hated Glanville and then rips him after the game. Could we get more of that in modern sports, by the way? Like, I don't, I don't, I want people, like, we shouldn't have to debate whether they were running up the score uh, on Monday morning talk shows. I want it to be obvious because the coach admitted it. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. just, just own it. Uh, but there were some of those games, but they still went 8 and 8 and didn't make the playoffs in 89, which is kind of hard to believe because they had so many of this 
same pieces back from the Super Bowl. So you set the stage. Bengals go nine and seven, like you met, you mentioned, Mo. They sneak into the into the postseason. That you know, there was sort of a lot of hoping that they could still kind of recreate that magic. They do sneak in. They beat the Oilers forty-one to fourteen. They lose to the Raiders twenty to ten in L.A. What happens next? August nineteen ninety-one. Paul Brown passes away at eighty-two. Sam Weish was gone at the end of that season, Christmas Eve of 1991 they go three and 13 then dave shula is hired and off we go as they say uh into the lost decade it's amazing like this to me was the clear passing of the torch season this was it this was the last hurrah for a incredible decade of football really in cincinnati it was the last shot the last hurrah and kind of a wounded soldier attempting that they were really outmanned, especially in the second game. They had a ton of injuries in the Oilers game. Um, it, that's what to me is like. I'm, you know, I was going to ask you guys what stands out to you guys most. To me, that's what it is. It's that this was the last sort of almost half-hearted attempt to make the '80s have the final step that they that it never ended up having because they fell short in in both '81 and '88. Yeah, the, the amazing thing w- when you watch that Oilers game, they they talk, they show the Sports Illustrated cover, and Cincinnati that year was named the city of the year in sports. <laughs> and I mean, just I mean, if, if we had that poll today, where I mean, were they bottom two, bottom three? It was just unreal because the Reds were so good, and then the the Bengals were good, um, but the it was more about Sam and his stance on women in the locker room, that type of thing. But yeah, you're right. This was this was definitely the the passing of the torch and, and you'll you'll hear in some of the the full interviews later uh james brooks and solomon wilcotts both talked about how they saw it coming that that they were letting very good players leave and replacing them with with ones that were not near as good and uh james brooks not a dave shula fan at all as you will hear are there dave shula um, fans out there <laughs> well he, he he was very outspoken uh about dave shula's uh coaching acumen so um, that was it. It was it was it was really shocking. The the season that you mentioned, eighty nine, that kind of happens. There's there's always that hangover from the team that loses the Super Bowl, and they started four and one, and then yeah, they had that big win against the Oilers, and all they had to do was beat the Vikings on Monday Night Football in the finale, and they lost that game, and they were out of the playoffs. But the the the, the shocking one was ninety one, where coming off this the the win against the Oilers, the loss of the Raiders, they go into ninety one, they go three and thirteen, just terrible, terrible season. And that's it for Sam Weish and, and then that is that is the line of demarcation when when this franchise went from from relevant to bottom feeders. Yeah, the eighty nine season I think would be fascinating in itself to go back and, and look on. Yeah, we always we make a big deal about point differential in the NFL now. The 89 Bengals finished in last place and scored 119 more points than they gave up. The 90 Bengals won the division and had a point differential of plus eight. Like that 89 year sort of, um, you know, they won a game 61 to seven. But but that season, if they won, they won a game, they blew the other team out. And if they lost... It ended up being a, a pretty close game. The other thing it made me think of is is just watching these two games is, you know, fans now, we get all worked up about Bengals v. Steelers. And, you know, I think a lot of us are hoping that there's something 
to a legitimate Bengals-Browns rivalry other than the typical, you know, Battle of Ohio. But when I was a kid, it was the Oilers because it felt like every time they went to the Astrodome, they didn't just lose, they got whacked. And it felt like every time the Oilers came here, we whacked them. And, you know, they had Jerry Glanville, who wasn't the head coach when they played him in this in this playoff. It was Jack Pardee. They had these, you know, they had just a, a scary as hell offense. Warren Moon was terrifying. But this was this was the rivalry. I mean, I, more, as a kid, because the Steelers, most of those years weren't very good. I know they made the playoffs in 89. The Browns, for the most part, weren't weren't very good. If you were to ask the 11 to 13-year-old version of me, who's the NFL team I hated the most, it was the Oilers. I thought their colors were stupid. I thought Jerry Glanville was stupid. I hated Chris Dishman, who gets a big penalty in this game. I didn't like. I didn't like. The, I thought the run and shoot was dumb. I hated everything about this team, and uh, so for me, it was fun to relive that. And I think there's a generation, or maybe two, of Bengals fans who sort of seem to think that it's always been the Steelers who, you know, we worked up the most bile against. And and for me, and and I think for most of my friends, it was it was the Houston Oilers. How about those all blue assistant coach suits <laughs> that they were wearing? Like that is just an atrocity from head to toe. That light oiler blue. I mean, they couldn't have like mixed up the colors a little bit. I mean, it was just. Could you imagine having to wear that if you're a coach? Uh, I want to say you mentioned this, and it, to kind of dive in a little bit into uh, the Oilers game that that they went. It, so much of this playoffs was defined with what happened in the weeks leading up to them. And that was earlier in the season, the Bengals get trounced uh, in L.A. by the Raiders. Uh, just just absolutely beat up. The Raiders, dude, the Raiders were ridiculous, first of all. I mean, they had, out, they had so many great players. Their offensive line was fantastic, including, most notably, someone you mentioned earlier, who you're going to hear from, Max Montoya, who is was 11 years with the Bengals, and then they didn't want to bring him back, uh, and he ends up having one of his best seasons uh, playing with a ton of great offensive linemen there, and then blocking for Marcus Allen and Bo Jackson. I mean, in that era, that was that's as good as it gets. Just a ridiculous offensive line, Marcus Allen, Bo Jackson. They had they had players. That were, unfortunately, had Jay Schrader, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> held him back a little bit. But and that their off their defense was was Greg Townsend and Howie Long, like they they had so many great. Tim Brown was on that on that offense. They had so many good players, um, and they and they just trounced the Bengals, and they really had them out talented in that second game with all the injuries. But they had the Bengals beat the Oilers a couple weeks earlier in a game that was originally supposed to be in Houston, yeah. but. The Reds postseason and the way they worked it had they had to move it even though they didn't play on that day they had to switch the home dates to so the Reds the Bengals had a five game road trip in the middle of the season which is like ridiculous obviously absurd um, but they beat the Oilers forty to twenty and knock out Warren Moon and hurt him out for the year and. In this game, like in the rewatch, it's hilarious because they hardly make mention of the whole reason this game is a blowout. Like, Cody Carlson is a disaster. He is awful. He Twice, literally twice, he goes back to throw and the ball flies out of his hand backwards for fumbles. Twice. 
and Warren Moon's just sitting on the sideline and like, oh yeah, there's Warren Moon. Yeah, he and, was hurt. And he yeah. could look less interesting. More talk about that. <laughs> no. Would you no. be interested in watching Cody Carlson play no, quarterback? Warren Moon looks as as Amazing. Don Crickey and Bob Trumpy sound in the booth. I mean, it is again, I, I don't want to keep harping on it. I there's other parts of the way these games were broadcast. But if you find this Bengals Oilers game, the last, you know, Cincinnati playoff victory, last Bengals playoff victory, I mean, starting late in the first quarter, Don Cricky and Bob Trumpy sound like the only thing they're concerned with is were Bob's going to dinner in Glendale and Cricky getting on his flight back to Buffalo. <laughs> I mean, it's they're so it is abundantly clear the Oilers aren't gonna win this game after about the second Cincinnati drive when they go up ten nothing. Kind of a crazy aspect of that, by the way, is in the in the Raiders game, there's a lot of talk about how the Bengals shouldn't have a chance, and they're like seven and a half point dogs. The Bengals were only three and a half point favorites in yeah. this game, despite you know Cody Carlson. That is amazing because they like you, they had just trounced the Oilers two weeks before in in Cincinnati. Um, James Brooks, 201 yards, a, a franchise record at the time. That it's it ended up standing as as his career high. Um, I, I didn't realize. I knew the, the line in the Raiders game. I did not know the line in that, that Oilers game. That that is surprising that it that it was so low. It it was. It was I, I at at ten nothing, like I, I t- said earlier, I didn't watch this game live, but at ten nothing I, I didn't quite feel on the rewatch that even though you know how it's gonna end up, but it, it, shortly after that, I mean, it was just the Oilers. Could, I don't. Would they have one first down like in the first half? Yards at half. Right they just could end, not. Yeah. yeah, they could not do <laughs> anything. And the Bengals are just scoring at will. They're going for it on fourth downs and, and getting it. And it was just it was total domination. So there's 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 that aspect of this. The other side um, is, could, I mean, could they have won the Raiders game? I mean, because. When you go into it, so they, they're missing Bruce Reimers, who, by the way, is sporting an incredible <laughs> Schmedium Hammer Strength t-shirt. I just could not get enough of that. Whatever happened to Hammer Strength? Can we look into that? I I love – I as soon as I saw that t-shirt, I was like, yes, that's all you used to see was Hammer Strength. And that thing was so tight. It was inspiration. Uh, but he's out. Anthony Munoz is out. James Brooks is trying to play through stuff. Um, Icky comes back. Yeah, Icky was actually incredible in that. He was like yeah. old Icky. Mm-hmm. He was great in that game. Um, but so, you, and you have them, they're right there in it. I mean, but all the talk, Bill Walsh is, is on the call there, you know, about how Sam's just got to f- find some tricks, pull some tricks out of his sleeve. Um, and there they are, though, with 12 minutes left. Tied at 10. I mean, Jeff Jagger hits a wild knuckleball, like 48-yard field goal, that if that doesn't go in, sets the Bengals up with great field position. And, and they would change. It, there's a lot of ways that thing could have gone different, even though it's they were really out-talented and they were beat up beyond belief and they're trying to, you know, stop these this ridiculous Oakland offense in their line. Like, they were right there. Like, there was a chance they could have – pulled that off so so uh the Raiders go up 17 to 10 and there's like 11 minutes to go it's third and 20 and whenever I think of being a kid 
this diehard Bengals fan, I think it's Super Bowl 23, and it's all the yards after the catch Jerry Rice got in the, against the secondary, just catching these quick outs and just, you know, running through the secondary. So Tim Brown catches a pass, and all they got to do is tackle him. And he's maybe a dozen yards short of the first down, and he just scampers through the secondary. It's third and 20, so there, if they get off the field, you know, they have the ball tie game fourth quarter on the road with a chance to, to take the lead, you know, in, in a in a game that they really have no business from a personnel standpoint winning. And they can't get off the field. Tim Brown just – and they so they go down and score a touchdown, and then the Bengals get the ball back, right? So it's, it's 17-10. Um, they're at midfield around the 45-yard line, and they do this weird end around, and Greg Townsend just destroys Boomer Esiason. So now it's second and 25. And those two plays to me, I didn't remember them, like watching it, you know, almost 30 years later, just scrolling through the game. Because I was, I was, I knew the game was close in the fourth quarter. I wanted to see what the pivot points were. Those were the two to me that stood out more than anything. If they get off the field, again, Boomer's got the ball. Um, They've got a chance to take the lead in the fourth quarter and who knows what happens. And it would have been because there's, there's two different versions of this game on YouTube. One of them shows the entire pregame show, and Sam Weish is doing this bit where he's like, yep, yeah, don't have Munoz, we don't have Rhymers, not sure about Brooks. Boy, if we win today, well, it's going to be one of the greatest stories of all time. Yeah. We don't have much. And, and it almost, I mean, I want to say it almost happened, but it, it's not like they went there and got the hell kicked out of them. They had a chance. And, again, that third and 20, they couldn't get off the field. Yeah, the, the Raiders outgained them by – I think more than 200 in that game. So you, you look at the stat sheet and you're wondering how it was even that close, but you're right. It was, it was 10 to 10 with uh, about 12 minutes to go. And and that was the same way that, that play, that third and 20 play to Tim Brown, the, 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 the play where Boomer got sacked for 15 yards. It was, it was one of those where you just leave the end. It's a, a like a bootleg and you just leave the end unblocked and, it just it, it Greg Townsend had a huge, he had three sacks in that game. He had the very first play of the game. There's no Anthony Munoz. Kirk Scrafford, an undrafted guy, is starting at left tackle for the Bengals because Munoz is out. First play, Greg Townsend sacks uh, Boomer, and then it, I think two plays later, Howie Long gets him, and you're just thinking, oh, this this is going to be just a, a bloodbath. And and they did. They played really well for for all the injuries they have, and, and kind of going back. To what Mo said about Cricky and Trumpy being just disengaged in the end of that that Oilers game, the second half, Anthony Munoz was playing that game with a torn rotator cuff. He he had torn it um, in in the Houston game a few weeks earlier, and he leaves the game um, in the second half. He he goes to make a cut block on one on Boomer's touchdown run, and he just he he has a hard time getting up, and he's been playing through the pain. He never comes back in the game, and they never mention it on the broadcast. I'm I'm watching it. The game's out of hand, and I'm still kind of studying everything. I'm like, wait a minute, why is Kurt Scrafford in there? I I, I didn't know what the deal was with Anthony until I talked to him on the phone, and he he said he had that torn rotator cuff. He was he was playing through, and he said he would block guys and separate, and it felt like they were still holding on to his arm. That's how bad the pain was, and he he tried to go. Um, in in that Raiders game, he he went through pregame warmups and he just he he didn't have it. He didn't have the the adrenaline adrenaline that he normally has from from kind of going through the pregame workout, and it, it killed him not to play. He said, but he knew he'd be hurting the team more by by playing than not playing. And and that was, I believe, that was the first game 
of his career that he missed. And that was he wow. was what 10 11 years in at that point. Yeah, it was it was odd to see him there in full gear. I mean, cuz he was there on the sidelines, you know, in emergency, I guess. Uh, in case in case they needed him, and and not be playing in a game of that significance. But yeah, when you hear that, it's like you know, what are you going to do? It's like, what's Kirk Scrafford up to today? What do we know? <laughs> we track, did you try to track down Kirk in this? I'd, I'd like to hear from Kirk about what that first play was like when Greg Townsend just totally owned yeah. him, and he's thinking, "Oh my God, what am I doing out here?" <laughs> he really responded um, and played pretty well after that. Yeah, no, he 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 held it together a little bit. Um, there's a lot of stuff to get to. Of course, you know, we want to talk a little bit about some of the that stuff from that era, stuff that would have gone viral. I have J- I have a very – I want to do a James Brooks monologue. This, Moe, this is going to be my Hal Morris moment. Uh, I love it. For this. which <laughs> I, need to, I need to step on the James Brooks uh, soapbox for a little bit. Um, and it, we'll talk a little bit about – Sam Weish and Boomer and and some of the other aspects of this. A lot of categories we want to dive into that we're going to do that. First of all, before we do that, I, I kind of want to just bring you a conglomeration of some of the, of the guys that we talked to from this game and this team and some of our favorite, uh, you know, Jay's favorite questions and answers. I talked to Max Montoya. Um, so our favorite question and single answer from them and then for the full uh interviews which are just awesome uh, we just said you know what these need to live somewhere so we are going to have a full uh podcast it's going to come out along with jay's uh companion uh piece on on this the last time the Bengals won a playoff game all coming out together uh this week so you'll have ability to listen to all of it we wanted to give you snippets of each of them uh so here's going to be uh an answer from Anthony Munoz, Max Montoya, Eric Ball, Jim Anderson, Solomon Wilcots, and James Brooks all talking about this era. Here's Anthony Munoz. The uh, I was talking to, to Solomon Wilcots, and he he was talking about the uh, the sixty one to seven game against the Oilers, and how Sam at halftime was screaming and yelling at you guys that the lead wasn't enough, and he wanted to blow out Jerry Glanville because he hated him, and um, you know Jerry was gone that next year for the playoff. Did it did it still feel like Bengals Oilers was a big rivalry at that point, or does that not even matter because it's a playoff game? Well, it felt more like it did in the eighties. You know, the player being rivals, you know, mm-hmm. the players on the field, not the coaches. Uh, you know, uh, they were always a big rival. I mean, the AFC Central with the Browns, the Steelers, and the Oilers, I mean, that thing, teams would go 9-7, and 10-6 and six and win the division, and people would say, well, that's a, you know, it's not a very good division. We'd say, well, you play a couple games against each one of those teams and see, you know, that was the day of the Browns with the great defense and the Oilers with the great defense. Of course, the Steelers are the Steelers. But, um yeah, I'll never forget that game. I was actually, we were all on the field. You know, we're up 58, uh, whatever, and, you know, Sam calls a timeout, and we're all looking at each other in the huddle going, what is he calling a timeout for? You know, usually you just let the clock run out, and you, you know, shake your buddy's hands on the Oilers, and then you run in, and he calls timeout, and here comes Jim Breach running on the field. We kicked that to move it up to 61. I'll never forget, you know, we get to the Pro Bowl, and, of course, I played with Bruce Matthews. He was a... He was a freshman when I was a senior at USC, so I knew him well. I knew Munchak. So I, we get to the Pro Bowl, and they're all sitting at a table by the pool. And I'm, you know, I'm like, hey, hey, guys, how you doing? I walk up, and they both look at me and Bruce, who I know. He looks at me and goes, you idiot. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, kicking a field. I said, hey, I didn't make the call. I said, you could call me an idiot. 
if it was my decision, but it was the head coach. <laughs> and they go, I know, but you're still an idiot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, but it was, to me, it was always a rivalry with the Oilers. And, like, you know, I, I say it tongue-in-cheek, you know, it just seemed like uh, back to the, the players on the field, the rivalry, it wasn't as much the coaches rivalry, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was always a, you know, if you could keep it in perspective and not let it, uh, affect you on the field, which I thought we did a pretty good job. It was a, always a nice sideshow between, uh, him and, uh, Jerry Glanville. And now here's Bengals defensive back Solomon Wilcots. Yeah, it's funny because Trumpy kept saying on the the broadcast about the problem with the run and shoot is there's no plan B. Like, they don't have tight ends. They can't line up and just run the ball. Yeah, and and now here's – I'm going to share something with you. I think it might have been the Super Bowl year, 88. That's how they stumbled into the run and shoot. We were – we beat them uh, at home. I think that we lost. Might have been overtime, a kickoff or something on the road at Houston. But we we beat them most of the time. But anyway, we playing them the second time at home. And I remember we were beating them like 28 nothing early in the game. Hmm. Second half, they just went all sort of like no huddle. This like two-minute offense is what it was. It, wasn't no huddle. it was like a two-minute offense. Yeah. Man, they started making plays on it. They literally came back. Now, they didn't beat us, but I, we were like, man, they probably should have did that for the whole game. I just remember thinking that. And then they might have done that a few more times. And after that, they started running that as their primary offense. Now, you're talking about an offense that had, just to give you an idea, they had a Hall of Fame offensive line. Mike Munchak, Bruce Matthews, Dean Steincooler. They had about three or four guys on that offensive line with all first-round picks. Then they had a backfield that was all first-round pick running backs. They went from uh, Alonzo Highsmith, Mike Rozier, Alan Pinkett, and then later they had Lorenzo White. Yeah. All first-round picks. But they had receivers. That's They had a talented team, you know, like – I think Ernest Gibbons was a high pick. Jeffries was a first-round pick. Drew Hill came from – he had been a great player with the Rams. They come over. And man, they loaded. Loaded. And then they stumbled into this run-and-shoot offense that Miles Davis had run when he had Jim Kelly in the uh, in the um, USFL. Okay. And that's how they kind of – found that offense. And so by the time they got, you know, we get to 1990, you know, that's, they were, they were full. They were running that every week. Most teams didn't have an answer for it. We had an answer for it. And now here's Max Montoya played 11 years for the Bengals, but in 1990 played for the LA Raiders. Looking back on it, it was kind of weird playing for the Bengals for so long and then playing them in uh I think we played them in the regular season a week or two before we played them in the uh, yep in the playoffs uh so yeah that was kind of weird it was it was kind of funny the first regular season game when we played the Bengals and we played them at the LA Coliseum and uh it was like hey buddy how you doing big Joe and Anthony yeah and this was in the locker rooms and such and and then when it came to the playoffs 
Uh, it was like they were marching soldiers. They didn't say a peep to me. <laughs> I think they had, I think they had orders from the top, or, or maybe Sam White says, "Don't you talking buddy up to much?" Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was curious. Was that a? Was that, I mean, guys in the midst of it, guys rarely admit when they face their former team for the first time that it's a big deal. But now looking back on it, was that a big deal? Though you know the fact that the fact that you were able to eliminate them from the playoffs and beat them up pretty bad in the regular season, or was that not you that know, big no, of a deal? No, you know, just the build up and outside of the arena, outside of the the playing field. Uh, you know, it's all that. It's like you're thinking, wow, this is different playing against the guys you practiced against and played with and then uh, and then it all comes down to game day and, and when you come through the tunnel into the uh, football field then it all changes and then it's strictly football business take care of your guy in front of you and win the game and you just forget about everything that's the greatness about sports when you're actually in the arena taking part and and that's all you focus on and that's a great thing about uh, playing sports. And now here is longtime Bengals running backs coach, now retired, Jim Anderson. 1990, I guess that that win against the Oilers, uh, I wanted to talk to you because it, it seemed like the running backs had a huge role in that game. You guys ran all over them. Um, I was specifically curious about, you know, James Brooks gets dis- dislocates his thumb and he goes out and Harold comes in and he's doing great. And then he limps off before halftime and he never comes back. Um, do you remember how much of a, a challenge that was, kind of readjusting things? Or did you guys just, you plug in Icky, you plug in EB, and you go? Well, I think that that's, uh, that's a, uh, the part you really you, you like because we, we have a thing going. And uh, with Boomer at quarterback, it really helps, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they talk about run-pass options with Boomer. He could get us out of a bad situation in a minute, and he could put us in a good situation. And so uh, that's a big plus. And then the guys that we had, you know, they were like guys that could play, like you say EB and you say Icky, they could play fullback and tailback for you. Yeah. And so that was that's a big plus right there. And so they were prepared when we lost the guy. And when you lose JB, that's tough. And then you have a young guy in Harold. And uh, he came out, and he, he's doing a good job for us. And so, you know, they just, they just, comp- they all complimented each other. I don't know, uh, that probably Harold had like 50 yards or something like that. And then uh, JB, and then I don't know what Icky or, uh, Icky or, or EV had, but um, I think the biggest thing, to be quite honest, is that the, the factor that we were playing at home. Mm. You know, because at that time of year, and you're playing the Houston Oilers at home, even though uh, they didn't have Moon, uh, shucks, it was, uh, it's a blessing because that cold weather, that was. They didn't play. They didn't play that great in cold weather, especially in our place. And it was raining. Oh well, you know. All see the thing about it, when you play down in that dome now, and them boys could throw it and spray it around and everything. It was great. But when you get in that cold weather and you're getting hit, old Dick LeBeau, he would say it's bingo weather. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it truly was because it's that time of year, and uh, you put that. 
you put them pads on those guys, you know, they uh, they, 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 they keep looking. You know, instead of catching, they're looking. And now here is then Bengals running back Eric Ball. Just just wondering what your like overall general recollections were of that season. Jeez. <laughs> uh, you asking a very tough question. That's that's you know what thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, um, it was one of those. If if anything that I can remember about this season, excuse me. Um, there might have been some games that, you know, were close games and we were able to somehow, um, you know, win, uh, find a way to, to get it done and uh, to go into that playoff. And I think we were in L.A., is that correct, for that playoff game? Well, you beat the Oilers in the in the first round um, and then, then you went to L.A. and lost to the Raiders. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I, I guess the the thing that only the really the thing that really sticks out was JB uh, was sick that game. James Brooks, uh, I remember him being out on the field. He's uh, in his stance before the snap of the ball, and he vomits. Oh my God. <laughs> He's out there on the field in his stance before the ball gets hiked and he takes off the hand, he takes the handoff and goes for a run. And wrapping it up now is star Bengals running back James Brooks. So uh, I know thirty years is a long time ago. How how much <laughs> how much do you remember about that game against the Oilers wow. when you you busted up your thumb? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think which one that was puff up. I think that was at, at, uh, the Oakland Raiders. Well, you, uh, you you beat the Oilers at home. That's when you dislocated your thumb, and then you, oh, you, oh, what not if I got broke it? Oh, you broke it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was broken half. Oh. Oh yeah. I can, matter of fact, I can remember. I think. Oh, I guess a week or two ago we we. We played in regular season, and I ran for 200-some yards against them. Then, you know, we came back and you know, played in the playoff, and it was, matter of fact, it was cold. Mm-hmm. Very cold. And, and what happened was my finger got, uh, the, the, I, when I went down, I sprayed my finger, uh, and it, and all that weight came down on it, and that's, that's why it snapped in half. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, I was walking off the field looking at it, and you, you know, you, at that time they had the, the big board, you know, the camera thing, and I went on the sideline and I said, "Hey, can you take this up right quick?" And <laughs> the trainer looked at me like, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> I was like, like, "No big deal. Let's go. Come on." And can the doctor come over and say, uh, "You can't go back in because it, it's, it's broken half." Yeah, because on the TV broadcast they showed like you went off the field and then you came back and then you were ready to go back in and then they showed I don't know if it was Sparling or one of the other trainers like holding up an X-ray and that's when they said uh, no you you can't go well, in. Well, well, that because I, I kept trying to tell them just go ahead and take it, just give me some tape put on it, and but you look you can look inside of it. I mean, it it, it had snapped out like that because it, it that day really was cold. I mean if. You know, even though playing against you know Houston, we just it was. I mean, it was already a test game already, but just the idea 
I mean, that, that, that's, that's really scary to think about. That is a long time ago. Yeah. Did you go to the hospital to get it set, or did you watch the rest of the game from the sideline? No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, they, they, they took me because I went and had surgery. Oh. Yeah, I went and had surgery. I mean, uh, when they took me off the field, they basically just put me down on it and, and took me to the, hall, uh, to the uh, hospital, and I had surgery on it. Then, I mean, after the game, all the guys come up to up there to the hospital to see me. <laughs> and then, of course, players to be players, they brought beer when they ever gave me some, yeah, gave me medicine. And we sitting there drinking a beer in, in, in there. Of course, everything came up. <laughs> and they kicked them out, out of the room. <laughs> so and just, they, 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 they're looking at us like, oh, y'all crazy. I was like, ah, they just. They just want to check on to make sure I was fine. I mean, that's to me. I think that I thought that was one that I laughed so hard about it because they're like, "You can't take no, uh, can't drink no beer after you took medicine and all that." I'm like, "Well, ain't nothing I can do now." How many of the guys came to see you? It was like uh, seven, eight of them. Huh. And of course, you know, all the room, you know, all people are all excited. Oh my gosh, that's under the dingles in here. But it was fun, though. We had a laugh at it because don't come back to practice and we start laughing about it. Uh, Awesome to hear from all of those guys. And, again, um, remember all those full interviews uh, are going to be posted up in the next podcast up. So um, just you'll be able to hear full from those. Just great stories. Just great stuff from them. Um, And uh, so a lot lot to dive into there. Uh, let's go through some of our uh, our segments here and some of the things we wanted to talk about. Uh, first of all, I want to start off with some things that were written uh, about this game, and the, the I'm just going to pick out one in particular um, because it is so on brand with so many elements of this, and that is after the Oilers are dismantled uh, at Riverfront Stadium, the next day in the Inquirer is just a story all about Boomer Sison ripping the front office for being cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it's I was like, wow, he chose this much. He's like, now's the time. And just won that playoff game. Too. I, yes. Yeah. So I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read you until, until he ends with ends talking about Palm Springs. Uh, so, Boomer Siason announced Sunday that the Bengals would travel to Los Angeles by Amtrak, or at the very least make at least four fuel stops if they fly. The Bengals quarterback used his playoff platform to gently chide, gently chide team management for perceived cost-cutting measures. Quote, you look on the sideline and you see the Chiefs and the Raiders, all this beautiful stuff that they're wearing, Siason said. We have to scrounge for turtlenecks. I guess the Oilers worked out at Spinney Field yesterday, and there were a few choice comments by them. They really got a chance to see how it was down home. One comment was, how do these guys win? <laughs> no Bengal players take pride in their ability to perform in adverse weather conditions. They often complain about the comparatively spartan conditions of their practice facility located in an industrial section west of downtown. Quote, we got those beautiful smokestacks over there, as Eisen said. Our skin is thick because of it, and I'm sure we'll be afforded that same luxury this week. I'm sure we won't be going anywhere early like Vero Beach or Palm Springs. I mean, even in the midst of success, even in the midst of winning games, 
I mean, that is the post-game comments because Boomer was like that. Sam was like that. And it didn't matter what was going on, if they were to use this as a chance to go ahead and rip on the team for being cheap. Yeah, one of James Brooks talked about the, the Spenny Field situation in our conversation about how players were legitimately worried about getting robbed going <laughs> to practice and coming home because of the part of town that the, that Spinney Field was in. And and the other thing, I mean, it's legendary how cheap everybody views the organization or how it operates slash operated. But one thing they did that, that year that, that kind of flew in the face of that was that that five-game road that road trip started with a Monday night game in Seattle, and rather than fly to Seattle and fly back home and then fly back to L.A. to play the Rams the following week, they stayed in, in Seattle that entire week and uh, you know went ahead and had housed the entire team at a hotel. And it, it paid off because they, they went down and they beat the Rams 34 or 31 in overtime to, to go to 4-1. and one. The rest of the road trip wasn't so good, but that, that was – I wonder what went into those discussions, who – talked Paul Brown out of it and said that we and it was probably Sam that that they had that was way more important to stay in Seattle for a week and absorb that cost because they that season they played five games on the west coast including the, the playoff game against the Raiders it was just a brutal schedule and it, it just worked out that way where they had two back-to-back and they elected to stay out there for the week and I know the NFL still offers teams the ability to do that if they if they want the schedule arranged that way but um, I, I don't remember the Bengals ever doing that any other time, staying staying in a location for a week. You, you know, it's in, on top of the boomer quotes in the paper, it, depending on the version of this that you watch on YouTube, the Raiders game, the, the one has the entire pregame show. And they they show this. They show the whiteboard where Boomer has written about, you know, hey, we're we're going to take an Amtrak to L.A., and then, you know, Sam's at his Monday availability, and he's asked about it, and he's chuckling along. But there's Bob Costas and Will McDonough talking about how cheap the Bengals are. I, I always, I, I think this is important to bring up because you have people, and you guys certainly uh, could speak to this better than anybody, you, you have folks who sort of view, you know, August of 91 as this line of demarcation after which, well, the Bengals turned into this horribly run cheap franchise. And it would be a stretch, obviously, to say they were horribly run. But I have, to this day, I have a Super Bowl preview issue from Sports Illustrated when they made it two years prior. And the crux of the article is about how the Bengals are winning in spite of themselves, how they have a terrible practice facility. Their owner is cheap. Uh, you know, they, they're not up to, to date. Uh, I Because I'm a nerd and I've had a lot of time on my hands over the last couple of months, there was a piece written 10 years prior in the late 70s when the Bengals were awful about the exact same thing. Bob Trumpy wrote a book in the mid-70s, and it was about how the Bengals are uh, they are not willing to do everything financially that it takes to win, and and they were in the middle of having some, some pretty good seasons. So I think the fact that they had success sort of obscures the fact that some of the criticisms that have been levied against this franchise for the last 30 years didn't just start in 1991. Even during some of their more successful times, people were calling this franchise, including obviously its its biggest names, were calling this franchise cheap. And I think that's, I think that has to be pointed out. So I'm glad Boomer did that 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and, and repeatedly since, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I think I have a way to fix any financial or cheapness woes and help them with a huge financial windfall. And that's in our next 
portion here, and that is bring back the tiger stripe gloves. Yes. Yeah. The 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 gloves that Sam Weish is wearing with the the orange ones with the little black tiger stripes on them were so huge back then. How have they not brought them back? Those things are deserving of a retro reunion, and I think they would be huge. Everybody wearing them on the sidelines. This this has to happen, and the, and the amount of money they could make just off bringing the tiger stripe gloves, I think could, they can you know they can go sign Larry Warford. <laughs> <laughs> those were all fashion though and no fun i mean those are they're like the cheap cloth gloves where you know you make one snowball and your hands are soaking wet and freezing for the rest of the time i, I was surprised to, to see a head coach I, they did they looked cool but they look like they served no function whatsoever that they would even protect your hand against it's against cold wind um i also like sam's starter jacket yes. that, with the the bengal stripes on the shoulder and yeah that 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 was a good look. I, I like it. Boomer had this. It was sporting the turtleneck too. Um, I, I like the Oilers uniforms. I know you guys <laughs> Mo didn't like them, and the the blue coaches all blue. That was ridiculous. But I, there was just something about that that Oilers uniform and helmet that I just it always appealed to me, even though I hated them. So I had no recollection of this as a kid. Um, in the Oilers game, a player gets hurt, and it might have been a Houston player. And he's got to get carted off, and it's yes. it's this Bengals helmet with it, it looks yes. like an old bullpen cart sponsored by Bugle Boy. By Bugle Boy, <laughs> how is this not a thing? How is this not a thing at Paul Brown Stadium? Every NFL team should have this. First of all, that you could just yes. you could put a sponsor on it. You could put Budweiser, whatever. You could sponsor the thing. I need this back. I need the helmet cart back. And you could, you know, you could rotate it the way they would at certain ballparks in baseball or if the Padres came to town and had a San Diego hat on it. You could do the same thing. Patriots come in, their cart has a Patriots helmet on it. That thing, uh, for, for, I'm glad I rewatched these games. If for no other reason that I, I got a chance to see how players were carted off at Riverfront Stadium in 1990. This has to come back. I yeah, and I thought you were going to point out how the I think it's the Oilers player. He just stands up and walks over to yes. it. Like there's no, he's not helped. There's no like he's just like oh there's the cart. I'm going to stand up and go sit down on it with my like you know gruesome injury or whatever, which is just another fascinating aspect of itself. Yeah, I had no recollection of those whatsoever, um, and that 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 was what I had written down to compare it to was the old bullpen carts. But I, I maybe that's why they got rid of them is just the. The, the optics of a of a like a visiting player going off in a in a branded cart of the the home teams. I don't know if other teams had it at that time. Do you guys remember if other teams had those kind of helmet? I've carts? never seen that in my life. I don't remember ever seeing one of those. And I want to no. see it every Sunday <laughs> moving <incredible>. forward. <laughs> also, uh, shout out the they still had the live tiger Ben Zoo on the sidelines for that. If you notice those signs. They still had the live tiger, which I don't know when that was like. Oh, can we? Are we? Are we for? Are we pro or con bringing the live tiger back on the sidelines, having Ben Zoo out there, or there's Ben Zoo eight, whatever we be on now? No, no live animals. Oh, that's I mean, what <laughs> a is tiger. This? You don't want a tiger at the stadium. This is it Tiger King? I mean, no, don't cage these animals. <laughs> that, I mean, I know LSU does it. They take heat for it. Um, but I did notice there. I don't know if you saw it at one point. I think it was back behind the goalpost. They had a Benzu mascot, like the actual Hude mascot was yes. this horrible, ugly looking 
awesome. um, costume, but they but they had the all white. It almost looked like a, a Funko Pop, where you know with a giant yes. head and a smaller body, more cartoonish. But I had never seen that before until I rewatched the game. I wouldn't say I wouldn't use the term mascot, but I, it was good to see Jay's people in L.A. with so many shirtless mullets in the stands. Your people, man, that was like I'm surprised I didn't see you like out there on there. It was everybody has no shirt on and a mullet beautifully cascading down their back, rooting on their Raiders. It was just that was glorious to watch. It was. It you was know what I remembered awesome. about that? The, the crowd scene. There's a guy with a watchman. He's like watching the game on his on his watch, man. And I had one of those. I I have a picture. I was at a good friend's wedding, and the reception was during an Ohio State Wisconsin game. And there's a picture of me and one of my friends sharing a set of headphones, one bud in each ear, watching the Ohio State game on my little watchman at a wedding reception for a good friend. Um, I want to talk a little bit about announcers real quick. We've talked a little bit about them. Uh, already, so I won't double up on that. But uh, so yeah, you mentioned Don Cricky and, and Bob Trump, which good to know that Cricky did something besides like being on the F team in the mid '90s Bengals. Like you, in, in the '90s, it was always like Cricky and Tasker every week. You know, so it's good to see him. He actually was getting playoff games back in the day. But one thing I wanted to point out is in the Raiders game for a decent amount of time, the audio goes out and. There is a moment where it cracks back in and it catches Bob Costas yes. defending the honor of some woman named Michelle. Yeah. Costas drops a, you don't speak to Michelle that way, and then it cuts back out. And it's like, what? Tell me more about that. <laughs> what, what was that? What just happened there? I'm interested. I mean, we're going to talk about the announcers and, and, and not mention O.J. Simpson? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh, I was, yeah. Take some time. You know here's what I was happy. So at, at the end of the Oilers game, he does an interview with Boomer and Sam Weish. And there's this really weird moment where I guess OJ's talking to Sam and Boomer's like goosing him. And Boomer and OJ are giving each other a hard time about wearing makeup and pantyhose. But most of all, I'm yeah. just really happy OJ is wearing a pair of gloves that fit. <laughs> They were the gloves. Those, those, were, those the gloves, were the gloves, right? Yeah, those were the gloves. <laughs> yes. The most famous thing about this game is OJ really wearing need- gloves in which he was accused of murdering two people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we really need. We really at this point we need an OJ segment in this series where it's like, how does this game connect to OJ? Because it when, in the first in the Reds one. It, it, the day he was uh, convicted or let off was the first day of that yeah. series against the Dodgers that they ended up winning. And here, OJ's right there in the sidelines getting goosed by Boomer <laughs> in the gloves. <laughs> like, what great moments in Cincinnati history all connect to OJ Simpson I'll, somehow. I'll, I'll admit, because the second half is kind of boring, I, I did a lot of skimming through. But so he's the sideline guy. They never go to him. They go to him a little bit early in the game no. because James Brooks injures his thumb. And you hear him for like three seconds, and all he says is, uh, oh, they, you know, they took him back, he hurt his thumb. And, it, you know, now the third the third member of the broadcast crew is, is featured prominently. Sometimes you see them, sometimes you only hear them. Here you have a Hall of Famer, pretty big name. He's down there working the sideline. And unless you stuck around for the post-game interview where he's wearing the gloves in which he was wearing when he killed those two people, you have no idea he's there. 
I enjoyed the line in the Raiders game. Uh, I think Enberg drops it. All right, O.J. Simpson will try to do some eavesdropping. <laughs> uh, it's all uncomfortable in retrospect. Uh, I mean, it's like, yeah, that was the only thing he was there for was to like get the O.J. get the uh, the Bo, Bo Jackson injury, which, by the way. We should all have been reminded as we listen to the reactions of the of the uh, the broadcast team to Bo Jackson's uh, injury. Not be doesn't look too serious. Uh, you know, a lot of talk about how he he should be fine. I think they think he'll be all right. Uh, don't ever listen to announcers in the moment or players ever when discussing seriousness of injury. After like they just don't. They're always it's always wrong. It, it just shocked me how how like quick they were to, to dismiss that injury. And, and it didn't, it did not look like a bad, I mean, no one expected that tackle to be a career ender for Bo Jackson, but yeah, they're, they're saying, Oh, he should be okay. I think at one point they even speculated that, that he would be back in that game. And then when they realized he wouldn't be back in that game, they said he should, he'll, he should be fine for the, the following week um, in the, in the championship game against the bills. It was, I don't remember if if that was a thing back then. If announcers were playing doctor, but clearly uh, that they are not the ones to listen to in those situations. So there's uh, there's one thing about Bo's performance early in this game. He fumbles, and the whistle blows inadvertently. The Bengals should have had the ball at midfield. Uh, the Raiders. I don't think they scored on the possession, but uh, Bo fumbled clearly, and the the ref screwed up. And because it was sort of pre all encompassing replay it just happened they respotted the ball and the game continued and I mean, bill walsh barely even touches on it in the booth the, the other thing that i honestly didn't remember everybody remembers this game for bo jackson getting hurt i didn't recall marcus allen just carving him up um you know i i, I didn't yeah. and obviously he did that to a lot of teams um you know clearly remember him being on the raiders but i i didn't remember him sort of kind of being the best player on the field and being, if not the main reason why the Raiders won, certainly one of them. I, that, you know, nobody, it, it feels like we always talk about Bo got hurt, what could have been, the Bo Jackson curse, ended his NFL career. And you're right, the announcers are very dismissive of of the injury. I mean, by, by really just, you know, wondering, hope Bo's okay, you know. Hopefully he's on the field in Buffalo next week. And meanwhile, Marcus Allen is, you know, sort of going vintage Marcus Allen on the Bengals who can't tackle him. 140 yards. Kind of, yeah, no. Well, and it was it was anybody yeah. that touched the ball. I mean, if you yeah. were in that backfield, that offensive line was just destroying everything in front of them. I mean, they were you had Tim Crumry who's, you know, a, an incredible pro and, you know, after the injury not as good and smaller, and a lot of these other guys were smaller up front and, you know, Max Montoya coming around the edge gaining revenge every single trap block and just destroying everything in his path. I mean, so there was, you know, there was a lot of that just being them getting blown up up front. And that pretty much dictated everything that, that happened in that game. Uh, I'll use this as our moment to touch on the curse of Bo since you mentioned it. Um, are we buying the curse of Bo? Is it the curse of Bo? <laughs> Max Montoya claims it should maybe it, People say it should be the curse of Max Montoya. I mean, they let him go. They decided not to bring him back. Nothing was the same after that. That's when it, that's when it all started to fall apart. I mean, that this this it's really interesting to see the writing on the wall. Looking back on it, when you look at how quickly it does turn over at this point, all 
whether it's Sam, whether it's Max Montoya, Solomon Wilcox, his last game, um, you know, you, you're seeing all of these players who are all ushered out. I mean, it's 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 clear, man. It's it's clear as it's a, it's quite a line in the sand when you when you really look back on it. Yeah, I mean, Solomon Wilcox talked about that that he's an eighth round pick and he's beating out a first round pick, and that makes your scouting department look bad. And and that was one of the reasons that he knew that Raiders game was his last game with the team. Uh, he knew they weren't going to bring him back. The, the, I I agree. I, I think it's it's the curse of Max Montoya because that was a conscious decision, a bad decision to let him go. Whereas the Bo Jackson thing was just kind of a fluke. And the the one thing about the the Bo Jackson, like I I've never, I had not, I did not watch the game, but everybody's seen the highlights, and you just always assume Kevin Walker like runs him down from behind, and he did tackle him from behind, but it was one of those things where Bo was going up the sideline and, and David Fulcher had an angle on him and Bo like slows down and cuts inside a Fulcher. And, and then that's how Kevin Walker was able to get him from behind. What was amazing is they showed a clip from earlier in the season where Bo was on a breakaway running down the sideline and Rod Jones, the Bengals cornerback, literally chased him down from behind like a lion and gazelle and tackled him at the one yard line. It was going to be like a 90 yard touchdown ended up being an 89 yard run. He gets down at the one yard line. I think that's, that's what everybody kind of, I feel like assumes the, the Kevin Walker tackle was, and it wasn't, he just, he, he had an angle after Fulcher slowed him down and made him cut. You know, we, we, we refer to this game kind of being the end of an era and, and it was, I it was so this morning. Obviously, they they're terrible. The following year, they're three and thirteen. I remember nothing about it other than it was Sam's last year. Um, they get off to an zero and eight start. This is a team that goes from winning a playoff game and being, you know, in the game in the fourth quarter of a AFC divisional playoff game to the following year, they get off to an zero and eight start, losing games by the score of forty five to fourteen. 30 to 7, 35 to 3, 35 to 16. You know, typically and and maybe that's what 90 was, but you don't go from, hey, we're relevant, we're winning playoff games to by the middle of the season you're wondering if they're ever going to get in the win column. They were getting destroyed. They didn't have the, you know, sort of 6 and 10 step down before they bottom out and start to have all these terrible seasons they had in the 90s. They were genuinely awful in 1991 with largely, you know, obviously not completely similar, but a lot of the same dudes who were there when they, you know, won a division title the year before. In in 80, after 89, Bruce Coslett goes to be the head coach of the Jets, um, who was the offensive coordinator during a lot of the 80s, and they actually beat the Jets in the opener in 90. Um, but... I think you started to see some reverberations from that, that, you know, Coslett deserved a lot of credit along with obviously Sam, but I think there was, he was a big part of that. And that started to become, it, it, how quickly the wheels come off from being what they were in 88 and having a lot of the same pieces to being what they became in the early part of the nineties is really, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, one other thing before we get into um, a little bit more of the game, I want to talk about one thing we like to talk about, you know, ads and stuff like that here. Just one comment about a game at Riverfront Stadium in 1991. How yes. about the number of Bible verse signs <laughs> made? There, I I was just 
There were four. I saw four. <laughs> Isaiah 5.3, John 3.3, 3, Revelations 14.11, which I don't want to look at, and Romans 10.10, all giant white cloth signs hanging off in the rafters. I'm like, what was going on at this point in time? I mean, have we have we gone so far as a society that just no one thinks about the Bible? Were we were we that much into the Bible then? Was it a Cincinnati thing? What was happening? I remember the John three sixteen signs being everywhere at every game, and a lot of times it was the guy in the rainbow wig holding it. Um, but yeah, that all those other ones, I don't remember that that was that struck. I'd written that down. Same thing: Revelations fourteen eleven, Romans ten ten. Uh, I, I was just like, is is that a Cincinnati? Because I mean, there is a very heavy Catholic population here in Cincinnati, but that 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 stunned me as well. And then at the end of the game. Uh, there were a couple of free Pete Rose signs, and he was Pete Rose yes. was to be released from prison the next day. So that became a storyline to kind of keep Trumpy and Cricky awake in the second half. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly what happened. I actually have that on here under our topic of most Cincinnati yes. thing about this game, and that is that there's free Pete Rose signs hanging from the Bengals game, Raptors. I mean, could it, you can't be more Cincinnati than that. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, can you imagine – Trying to because now they take down any banner you try to put up, right? I mean, whether it's pro or con, I've never tried to take a side into a game, but you don't see that now. You don't see. I mean, you know, only the one, only the one, only the, the one that goes up above the fifty that we right. all talk about. <laughs> Can you imagine like rolling in with you know Revelations twelve twenty five? You know, after people have been tailgating all morning, uh, maybe I'll try that the next time we're allowed to go to games. But yeah, I noticed. I noticed that as well. The other thing that's Im- impossible, I guess, from my standpoint to not notice, and it used to drive me nuts as, as a younger fan, was the completely unmarked field where th- there's no Bengals logo yeah. in the end zone. There's It's just this big, ugly green patch with the baseball outline. No attempt to dress it up at all. They don't paint. They didn't paint the end zone until many, many no. years later, the last couple of years at, at Riverfront. It just it looks awful. Even by like 1990 standards, I would imagine most teams had their names in the end zone. The Raiders obviously do the following week. We couldn't just write, even in chalk, Bengals or Cincinnati. The bare minimum. <laughs> Why were they so dedicated to just the ugly plain field, like the empty end zone? I never understood that. Why anyone would be so dedicated to that? So one of the very first Bengals games I ever actually went to was in 94. It was the 75th anniversary of the NFL. And like the second home game, they put a logo, uh, you know, NFL 75th anniversary. We thought that was so cool. We're like, oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Paint, look, (laughs) something besides green. Uh, Yeah, that 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 stand. Also, scrubbing through an NFL game when you don't have down and distance on the screen the Mm -hmm. entire time is really hard. No, oh, yeah, there. The watchability of it does become difficult if you're actually trying to watch it. Uh, let's let's go into what would have gone viral. Um, what you what's your? Do you guys have one? I I think I hope I have a good one that you guys don't have. I hope that I picked it out, but I want you guys to go first. Well, I, I for me, it, it's James Brooks' thumb because he when he gets up and they show it completely bent backwards, and it took him a while to find it. You know. It, today's NFL, they would have that right off the bat. That would that would be a, a camera shot that was immediate. It was, it was like a series or two later before they they came up with the shot, but then they just kept going back to it. And it wasn't it wasn't horribly grotesque, but it was it was jarring enough that you you, you know he can't play with that. Um, 
So that that was a thing that I, I think they showed it four times throughout the game uh, as the game wore on, and I, that is definitely something people would have clipped and had all over Twitter. Yeah, at one point even Trumpy says like, "Hey." It's like to the truck, like, all right, I don't need to see that again. Because <laughs> they do show it. They do show it up close uh, a number of times. I, I I didn't really go with anything in this category because I don't know that there's anything that would have gone completely viral. I, you know, I mentioned early in the game there's a, a blown call where Jackson fumbles and I think Lewis Billups recovers it. But the, um, you know, just the way we – that would have been tweeted out, sent out a thousand times, and people would have made that a bigger pivot point of the game that it probably ended up being. But I, I jotted that down, but I didn't feel great about it. And then, you know, obviously we didn't know 30 years ago that O.J. Simpson was going to be a double murderer, but yeah. the weird interplay between him and Boomer Esiason would have been something yeah. that a lot of us would have, that my, my buddies and I would have had a lot of fun with. There is no doubt. Um, okay, so here, here's mine. I'm glad you guys didn't say it. How about... The creepy white van yes. parked in the corner of the end zone. <laughs> what is okay? So to, for people that haven't seen this, so in literally, I, I try to kind of look through my my general judgment of how far it was. About eight yards from the back line of the end zone is the front of a giant white van, like straight creeper. Hey, call alert the cops to come check the license plates on this thing. Out. It's parked right in the corner, right in front of piles of ice and snow, okay? So people are running on ice and snow, and there is a giant, creepy white van in the end zone. Boomer runs for a touchdown. He slips trying to go around and throws the ball up into the stands, trying to like throw it out of the building or something. And he starts slipping and has to go around, quickly maneuver around the back of a giant van that's parked basically on the field what is it doing there who resides in it what is the point of it i have so many questions about this van and you couldn't found a parking spot a little further away from the field i am just i i have so many questions about the creepy white van i could i I would want to write a three thousand world oral history just on this van i have a theory and it's it's not a. I've seen other vehicles on fields. Like you watch some of those old time clips, and there there always seems to be a car in the back of the end zone. But what what I think this one was, I thought this was an extinct extinct thing from the seventies. But I noticed it was still there. They had a bandstand in the opposite corner of that that same end zone, and they would literally have a live band playing. Um, I, I fight song here that tiger or here that Bengal growling or a pregame concert. I don't know what all they were playing, but I think that van is like what brought the band members and their instruments to the game. And they just said, well, let's just park it right here and give them a short little walk over to the bandstand. I can't figure out any other reason that van would have been on the field. F- fair enough. Fair enough. But I would like to point out in riverfront stadium due to the fact it was a multi-use, also for baseball. The amount of space behind the benches is <laughs> ridiculous. There is, I mean, you have 40 yards between the sideline and the even getting near where the stands are. You couldn't have parked over there where no one runs. I mean, it, it is ridiculous. I cannot get past this. Where's Icky going to shuffle if he put the van back there? It's, there's still plenty of room. I mean, it's it's to the point where actually uh, my wife and I were wondering, like, 
do the Oilers even have a bench? Because there's one, there's not as anywhere near as much personnel on the sidelines as you normally see, but there's two small benches. And that's it. Compared to today, it's like the whole thing is lined. It almost looks like because of the vastness behind it and there's the two small benches, like they just walk to the field with nothing there. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I don't know. I have I have a lot I have a lot of issues with with the van. I need to know more. I did one other thing I had is you know something that possibly would go viral was the was the at that icky shuffle because I don't know if yes. you guys noticed. I mean, it was old by then, but. He waited until after the extra point to do it, not to take attention away from that. And NBC waited to go to commercial until Icky did his shuffle. They wanted to get that on camera. It's the only thing Cricky and Trumpy seem remotely interested in all afternoon. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, he scores the touchdown, and, Tr- and Cricky's like, well, uh, it's, you know, it's a big thing here. It's, it's an iconic thing. He's going to go over in the sideline. I mean, like, Cricky comes to life for about 45 seconds when he does the icky shuffle and um yeah they they would he would have to come over to the sideline to do it and i i uh i actually looked up to see if that was the last ever icky shuffle because i had no recollection of icky scoring touchdowns in 1991 which he did so but it was among the last what i what i enjoyed about it was a couple of things one trumpy keeps calling him ixter which i like <laughs> because icky has an if you might not know this little little nugget for you, Icky Woods has a Ixter tattoo on his on his arm, which is great. Uh, but also, most people when they think of the Icky Shuffle, and I love the pomp and circumstance of the whole thing of everyone waiting for it. Uh, but when they think of it, they think of in '88 in the playoffs, it, like the SWAT team would come over and they do this woo woo thing with their their fingers after he was done doing his the spike. He added, like this year, he added some weird pelvic thrusting type event at the end. That was, you know, it's sort of like the sequel is never quite as good as the original. Uh, it's a weird thing where he like he, he hits his hips with his arms like three or four times and then points out into the stands real quick. So I don't know what all was going on there, but most people forget uh, how he, the amendments he tried to make, I guess, to keep it fresh. Uh, as the 90 season went on yeah I don't know if that if that hip thrust was like a, a, a shot at the league I can't remember when they said you have to do it on the sideline as opposed to to the the end zone but that clearly he had he, he missed the first half of that year but he clearly had, had done it before then so it, I don't know if that was the first time he unveiled the hip thrust but that that struck me as well too because that was not the the shuffle I remembered I remember the little twirling of the finger uh, let's let's move on to who's your who's your MVP. And it's kind of weird to call MVP. We're talking about a win and a loss, um, and, and the end of an era. And there's a lot of sort of failing surrounded by it. But I mean, who's do you have an MVP of of kind of the games that we watched? Well, I mean, for the it's got to be Boomer for the Oilers game just by default. Um, Harold Green, we haven't talked about, but this kind of this is goes back to the announcers too. Um, James Brooks goes out with the thumb injury and Harold green comes in and goes crazy. He has like 55 yards on, on 11 carries and um, he, he catches a pass for a touchdown and he's, he's a rookie. It's like you lose a guy like James Brooks and you're thinking, Oh trouble. And this rookie comes in and is having this great game. Well, he leaves in the first half. He limps off the field, not a mention from the announcer. He never comes back. He doesn't play in the Raiders game either. Whatever he suffered was serious enough that knocked him out for the rest of the playoffs 
announcers never mentioned it. Side guy and side guy and sideline reporter OJ Simpson never brings it up. He it was just baffling. It's like where where is Harold Green? What's wrong with him? Uh, he was in line to be the MVP, but um, it, it had to have been Boomer. Um, yeah, they ran all over him in that game, but but uh, there was a couple. There was a play early in the second half where I think it was like third and ten, and, and Boomer ducks a rush and ran down the field, twenty-seven yard gain down to like the ten yard line to set up the the touchdown that really kind of sealed it away. And and he gets up. He's I'd never seen him. I mean, he was a he spoke like a leader, but you never really saw him get that animated on the field. And he was fired up and it. it there's really no one else in that game that I think you could name the MVP just because of the way the injuries hit the the backfield and, and how that, that whole load was split. Yeah. I, you know, it, Boomer in 88 uh, wasn't great in the playoffs. Uh, <clears throat> their defense was really good. They ran the ball exceptionally well, but, but even in the games they won against Seattle and Buffalo, he wasn't great. So this is, his only really good and it's not like he had to throw it a thousand times but it's his only really really good postseason performance I also wrote down the name Dick LeBeau for two reasons one that Houston offense was really scary they played you know six defensive backs in in the one moment where he was remotely interested in explaining strategy Bob Trumpy did a pretty good job of outlining what they were doing and then they showed Dick LeBeau on the sideline and he looked exactly the same as he did five years ago when he was with the <laughs> Titans so just because uh he aged incredibly well uh I had I had Dick LeBeau to to, to win the Houston game the the Raiders game uh I put the name Stanford Jennings down because his touchdown was the last one by a Bengal in a playoff game for a decade and a half. So, uh, and it may not have even been intended true. for him. Yeah, yeah. If you watch on that play, I think Boomer was actually throwing it to a receiver behind him, and it just Stanford happened to be there and caught it. Uh, Dick LeBeau can't be because Cody Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, <laughs> how many guys do you have to overthrow wildly until you're like, it really doesn't matter what we do. Like it, they can't. This dude can't do anything. Uh, oh, also, know, Sam, I wrote stonewashed a, jeans because the Oilers coaches, yeah. <laughs> their pants, that's what they look like. I know they're not, but they look like stonewashed jeans, and I know how big stonewashed jeans were in 1990, 1991. Jack Pardee looks like he's wearing a pair of Lees on the Houston sideline. Can we get more uh, head coaches in jeans? <laughs> like, I... I could go for that. Why? Why is that not a thing? It's like Just what casual Bob Phillips Sundays, did, right? You know? So is the, is, you would have been allowed to. He was the coach of the Oilers. You could have gotten away with it. I mean, these guys. A lot of these coaches wear like track pants and stuff. You can wear a hoodie. Why can't you wear jeans and a tee? Why can't you wear jeans? Exactly. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say, you know, Sam. There's a lot of in, in the in the Raiders game, especially. There's a lot of talk from Bill Walsh about. How it's all about Sam just trying to cook stuff up, and he was he. There was a lot of cooking up some magic. Although one thing about the strategy in that in the Raiders game, it's seven to three, and they got like two and a half minutes, and they get the ball before halftime, and basically try to sit on it, like not even try to do anything. I'm like, is this did did Marv take this over? What is going on here? Why are they not? <laughs> You've got Boomer Esiason and then in this offense, and your Sam Weish, and and plays it super conservative. Um, and, you know, if you go for that, you know, suddenly at the end of the game, you're, uh, that last field goal doesn't take you out. You know, you can still go down and win or tie or have the lead for longer. It changes things a lot if you go down there and make a play. I th- and they sort of praised him for it. In retrospect, and maybe that's something that analytics changes um, in today's day and age. It's like, wow, y- y- 
you would think there would be a little bit more aggression from a, a really aggressive coach. I mean, they talk many times about how many fourth downs they went for that year and his really aggressive style and all that other stuff. Surprising to see him sit on it and be comfortable there at the end of the first half. Otherwise, you could talk about him and some of the, you know, the way they spread everything around. Here's the thing, and this is uh, for a box score takeaway. Uh, versus Houston, nobody had more than two receptions. And six players had at least five rushes. He used every player on the roster that could run or catch, pretty much. I mean, there was a lot of making it work. So Sam, Sam was doing a lot of Sam stuff as well in in these uh, in these playoffs. I want to go to trivia. I, I have a, I have a little piece of trivia for you, and it's also going to be my James Brooks soapbox here. Um, I'll ask you. So in eight years with the Bengals in Cincinnati, James Brooks averaged 4.8 yards per carry and 10.1 yards reception. Now, that's not on a small sample size, as you might imagine. That's 1,344 rushes, 297 receptions. That's a lot of lugs. That's a lot of catches. That's an absurd yards per carry and reception and yards per reception. How many players have done that on average for more than two seasons, more than two seasons, much less his eight years in Cincinnati as an average. How many players have done that for more than two seasons, do you think? Four. None. None. Really? None. None have done it for more than – James Brooks did it three single seasons. Nobody has done it three single seasons. Uh, Marshall Falk did it twice – along with Larry Johnson, Barry Sanders, O.J. Simpson, and uh, somebody named Delvin Williams from the 70s. How about this, though, on top of it all? James Brooks in 1986. And I don't know, this is a season that really needs to be discussed more through the current lens of what the NFL is. He was a little bit out of his era yeah. then where they, there was so much rewarding and appreciation for volume backs that would carry 400 times in a season. He had 205 carries for 5.3 yards per attempt and 54 receptions for 12.7 yards per reception in 1986. That's insane. Again, players with a single season with 200 uh, carries and 50-plus receptions and going an average of 5-12, and 12, only one other season has that ever happened in NFL history. Marshall Falk in 1999 with the greatest show on turf. That's it. James Brooks, 86. Marshall Falk, 99. How about this? In 86, he was not all pro. Yeah. He had that season, that insane season, and he was not all pro. Joe Morris and Eric Dickerson. Because Eric Dickerson got shoved 404 carries at 4.45 yards per carry. And Joe Morris had 341 carries at 4.4 yards per carry. So you talk about underappreciated. I mean, this is a dude that did it for longevity. He did it for peak. He did it for a long period of time. And because he's a little bit out of his era, never gets the credit. I mean, he's living in elite territory. And he does not get anywhere near the appreciation for a guy he was. You know, nobody was, nobody was doing that. Here's, another, here's one, more, one more trivia for you. Total seasons. With 180 rushes and 25 receptions as a minimum, and in just five yards per carry and nine yards per reception, Brooks did that three times. Marshall Falk did it three times. Charlie Garner did it twice. Barry Sanders did it twice. Nobody else more than one. NFL history, Super Bowl history, Super Bowl era. It. I mean, he's in almost unparalleled territory, and yet, 
how often do we hear about James Brooks in in real conversations about great players? And I think I think it's an issue of era. But when you really look at it, it's like wow, he was so far ahead of his time. Yeah, it's funny you bring this up because I'm I'm working on another story looking at the the best running back seasons in Bengal Bengals history and that that 86 season by James Brooks, 1087 yards. So that 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 barely ranks in the top 10 all-time of Bengals. But like you mentioned, he averaged 5.3 yards per rush, 12.7 yards per reception that year. He led all NFL running backs in both categories. Led him in yards per carry and in yards per reception, which is just unheard of. It, it, that that is clearly the best season in, in Bengals history. And, and you're right, he wasn't all pro that year. Uh, another nugget about James Brooks, they mentioned it on the Raiders broadcast, how mad he was that he didn't make the Pro Bowl in 90. Um, he ended up going because of Bo Jackson's injury. He was Bo Jackson's replacement after Kevin Walker tackled him and, and ended his career. Yeah, and you know, you talk about that being a day and age where, you know, uh, let's say that the New York Giants had Joe Morris, and he would carry it 31 times. You know, you you just had these offenses that were designed around a guy carrying it on first and second down. James Brooks was splitting carries, and obviously, as as you've outlined, Paul, they've you know used him as a, a pass receiver, but he didn't lead the '88 team to the best of my knowledge. I think he might have missed a game or two, but he did not lead them in carries. Stanley Wilson had more than 100 carries that year. Obviously, the emergence of Icky, he got the majority of the carries that season. And, you know, he might not have been built to, you know, physically to be a guy who was going to get it 30 times. But you could talk about underappreciated. But in the era he was in, you could also look at him statistically and maybe argue he was perhaps even a little underutilized. Now, what they did was, you know, that 86 team, I think they had the number one offense in the NFL. They scored at times at will. That's, you know, sort of the, the... when things really started to, to fall into place for that offense. But in that era, which was really defined by most teams having one back who did most of the heavy lifting, put James Brooks on one of those teams, and it would be interesting to see what would happen statistically. Uh, but because they they surrounded him with other guys and had such a, you know, a, 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 a versatile offense, it was uh, – he doesn't, you know, statistically um, – and otherwise doesn't get maybe the run he deserves. Put him in the uh, Bengals or cheap category as well. I had a conversation with James last <laughs> summer, and it was asking him about he his touchdown numbers were really low, and he swears that that Paul Brown it was a it was a mandate from the top from Paul Brown to let Icky and other players come in and get the touchdown so that they wouldn't have to pay James Brooks. He said they let him run crazy inside outside the twenties, and then when they got inside the twenty, they took him off the field. <laughs> Check his contract for escalators. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, how about in in a uh, in the making me feel old category here? How about in the off season? Carl Zander lives in Tennessee and just sells real estate. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was that day and age where dudes just weren't making enough cash. This is a dude that played in the Super Bowl. He was a starter, and he's just like, man, I got to I got to make some ends meet this off season. I got I got to sell some houses. I love it. Yeah, for my for my thing that made me feel, I had written down that the Watchman again. I had completely forgotten about those. Nobody, everybody now just pulls out their phone and can watch things there. But that 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 really stuck stood out to me when they showed the crowd shot of the guy with the Watchman and the mullet in in L.A. I uh, I had single bar face mask, 
Lee Johnson yeah. and uh, and Jim Breach rocking the single bar face mask. I I actually was alive and was a, a passionate football fan in the era of the single bar face mask. And watching these games reminded me of that, and I did not want that reminder. On the other side of that, also the like super giant thick offensive lineman face yeah. masks that are like. <laughs> I mean, they're like full-on front helmets. It's fantastic. I love those. those are like the ones that every kid who was in seventh grade played with back in the day. But the only thing was missing like the bar down the middle, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, how would history change with the opposite result of this? So, we'll start with let's say the Bengals beat the Raiders. Um, let's say Bo Jackson doesn't get hurt. Is anything? Does anything change? Well, unless. If they go to Buffalo and win and win and and make it to the Super Bowl, maybe something changes. But people forget. I mean, Buffalo just absolutely destroyed the Raiders in in that AFC fifty one to three. Yes, and so I I had written that no, nothing would have changed at all because it the even if the Bengals win that game, I mean, the following year they go three and thirteen. Sam's gone. Shula come. I mean, I don't know how a win in that game would have changed any of that and. The, the Shula era and the 90s are what they are. Um, I, I just I, I don't I don't see how anything would have gone differently with a win in that game unless they did go to Buffalo, which they seem to have Buffalo's number in that era. But going into Buffalo that time of year and winning uh, to go to the Super Bowl would have seemed like a long shot, especially with the injuries they had. So I went with no, nothing would have changed. Yeah, I think maybe the the way that we talk about that era would have changed a little if you could have said, well, they played in two conference title games in three years, but they would have gotten smoked by that Bills team that was obviously on its on its way to the first of yep. four straight Super Bowls. So I um I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. Um, the Bo Jackson what if is one of the you know the greatest in sports. Uh, you know there was there was a stretch from you know, middle of 89, right up until then where, you know, he was, it was like he and Michael Jordan, I felt were one in one a, in terms of the most popular athlete, certainly among, you know, my group of friends. So, you know, that to me is, is an awesome, what if, but I, I don't, I don't really think anything really changes just simply from aside from the, the fact that you would have, you would have been able to look at it and say, you know, for a stretch over three years, they made two conference title games and, Maybe the era as a whole is is viewed a little with like it was a little bit more successful, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't think anything's different. I, I totally agree with both you guys. Lost decade was inevitable; it was coming, uh, no matter what happened in these games. Uh, but the one the one side of this, and I, I won't bog it down here at the end, but I do kind of wonder if the Oilers with the run and shoot and Warren Moon actually at quarterback and not Cody Carlson. Uh, had made a real run and maybe won a Super Bowl, how quickly maybe the passing revolution would have taken over the NFL earlier, maybe. I mean, we wait for a long time for it to not be viewed for it to be viewed as a passing league. I mean, really, you twenty years. If the Oilers do that and other teams start copycatting it, and maybe the rules start changing earlier, suddenly are we seeing more of a passing league in the late nineties and early two thousands? Um, than it than it was even, and and then it has become now. If the run and shoot, really one of the the earliest adopters of the way football looks now, um, I, I wonder. I wonder if they would have ever actually put it together back then. If it if it would have made a difference, who knows? Yeah, it may have. Um, Solomon Wilcox brought up a good that the run and short 
the run and shoot was born in Cincinnati. He said it was that that '88 season when the Bengals went to the Super Bowl. They were blowing out the Oilers 28 to nothing, and they just figured, what the heck? They went with like a two-minute offense and just spread it out, and almost came back and won that game. And and he he said that it's a little-known fact that is where the run and shoot started was in that game. Um, and who knows that the Bengals seemed to defend it better than other teams because they played the Oilers twice a year and they were a little more familiar with it. I don't know. Maybe other teams would have, you know, kind of like the Wildcat a decade or so ago where at first it's, it's really hard to defend and then people catch up to it. Um, I, I don't know if that would have triggered the passing revolution quite that early or not. You know, it's we, we make a big deal here about how the Bengals went to, to five straight playoffs and uh, Cricky and Trumpy are lucid enough early in this broadcast to mention that this is like their, their fourth <laughs> consecutive year making the playoffs, which was, you know, unheard of. And they went three years after that. They had the game where they were up on Buffalo 35-3. to They had another game where, you know, I remember watching John Elway come back and beat them late in Denver in a game that I kind of felt like the Oilers were in control of. There was a stretch. It was a seven-year stretch of making the playoffs. And that's, that's really, really hard to do and, and do it um, without having any kind of postseason success. Never even made a conference championship game. So... You're right. If if um, if they have a little bit more postseason success, you know, perhaps the the passing revolution is accelerated, and uh, heck, maybe the Oilers are still in Houston. I don't know. But seven straight years making the playoffs. I, I'll tell you this. I, I think I, it would be the greatest if we could do sort of a. Uh... Uh, this is your life with you right now, Mo, and be like, and now we're going to bring on Bob Trumpy. <laughs> I love uh, Bob Trumpy. To discuss. I, lo- I love Bob Trumpy. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do, and I feel like that's why you're comfortable oh, taking I'll all these shots. I'll say this to his face the next time I see him. Bob, what happened? Was a home game for you? Just stay at, you know, stay out, go to the Iron Horse Inn and stay out too late? One too many pregame smokes? Like, what? Was, I mean, it, I lo- Bob Trumpy's a Roselle Award. I love Bob Trumpy, but... Uh, this is not the – we're not talking like peak Madden summer all here on Bengals v. Oilers. And it's mainly – Don. honest to God, for, for those who haven't seen, the Bengals go up 10 nothing, and Don Cricky's like, well, so uh, next Sunday we're going to have a, a doubleheader on NBC. The Bengals will be in Los Angeles. And it's like, God, Don, there's like yep. 40 minutes left. I mean – what are we doing here? And then early in the second half, even Bob Treppy's like, there's only one reason to maintain watching this game, and that's to see if Eric Wilhelm plays. Like, I'm sure the network execs were thrilled yeah. <laughs> with Trump, you know? Oh, yeah, thanks, Bob. It would only be a few years later, right, when those Oilers would be up 35-3 to yeah. in Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Great. Hey, guys, this has been uh, fantastic. I hope uh, you all enjoyed going back. And, Jay, I know you enjoyed probably feeling like you were back in your mullet world back in L.A. and just feeling back at home. So enjoyed going back. I hope everybody else, if you get a chance, uh, we'll we'll put the links out for you if you want to go back and rewatch this after uh, listening to this. Or uh, and, and, of course, we will have the full, more of the full conversations with uh, all those guys, Anthony Munoz, Max Montoya, um, Solomon Wilcox, James Brooks, uh, though that will be out along with uh, Jay's look at the last time the Bengals won a playoff game, um, coming out very soon. So keep an eye out for that. I hope everybody enjoyed this. We're going to try to keep this going uh, with some of the other, uh, major Cincinnati sports. So keep an eye out for those as well coming in the near future. Uh, 
Jay, Mo, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk to you next time on Hear That Podcast Ground.